What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning back to the Amramac here on 93.3 CFMU, where every Thursday afternoon we talk to a McMaster graduate student to learn more about their research and what they enjoy doing outside of the lab. So in today's episode, we are pleased to welcome another McMaster graduate student, or should I say McMaster graduate as well. So today we have Niku Agai, who received her master's in science in the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences, which is under the Faculty of Health Sciences. How are you doing today, Niku? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm hanging in there. I am doing okay. Um, I would ask how your master's defense went, but the fact that you're sitting here in front of me um, seems to say that it went pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it went pretty well. I'm glad that it's over, but uh, it was definitely an experience on itself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, an experience and an accomplishment right? Yes, for sure. It's nice to finally see the end and kind of see how the project began and where you took it. Yeah. Yeah. And what's to come after as well. Mm -hmm. That's also exciting. Yeah. Um, So without further ado, I guess we can talk about what that project was and what you did during your master's. You kind of want to start by briefly describing what uh, your project and research was about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I uh, worked at Dr. Sheila Singh's lab, which is primarily focused on brain tumors And the subgroup that I worked at was the brain metastasis group. Um, And what brain metastasis means is basically the spread of cancer from other places in the body to the brain. Um, Specifically, the project that I worked on um, looked at lung to brain metastasis. So primary lung cancer moving throughout the circulation and going and homing to the brain as a secondary location. Um, So the project that um, I looked at was kind of the the genetic underpinnings and the genetic drivers, we call, um, of this cascade of going from the lung to the brain. Because if you imagine, if we can kind of target those specific genes that are responsible for um, the cells actually growing out of the lung and going and finding a new home in the brain, which is a very specific organ in the brain and not really easy to um, live into, Um, those specific genes, if we can target them, then we can probably prevent metastasis from happening. And imagine if those genes are actually also expressed in the lung tumor, maybe we can treat the lung tumor at the same time. Um, So those are just kind of different avenues that this project can go down. Um, But the next thing for us to figure out was what what are the methods that we want to use to figure out these genes. Um, And a really cool method that's actually up and coming now, it's called CRISPR activation. Um, That's the thing that we decided to go ahead with. And I can kind of go deeper into that and what that is. You might have heard of CRISPR. Um, It recently won a Nobel Prize. And um, it's basically a form of gene editing. Um, as you're aware, and it's um, basically taking taking a specific section of the genome or a sequence in the gene, um, taking it out. So that's a traditional type of CRISPR. It's called CRISPR knockout. So taking or deleting basically that specific sequence um, and rendering that specific gene as inactive. So it's basically knocking out that gene and inactivating that gene in a specific um, cell. Um, so the opposite side of that would be CRISPR activation which is transcriptional overexpression. What that means is that if you think about how um, genes are being transcribed and translated and what genes basically just do is that DNA gets transcribed into RNA and then RNA gets translated into protein. Now we're targeting this first step between DNA and RNA. We want a lot of transcripts from our gene in order to make more protein from this 
specific gene. So that's the, the overexpression that we're, uh, that the gene is, is uh, experiencing throughout this process. So let's say we overexpress gene A in one cell and we see that the cell actually made it up to the brain. Um, this way we can, we can basically dedu deduce that gene A is in some shape or form responsible mm -hmm. for the cell moving from the lung and finding a new home in the brain. Now we take this specific gene and we validate it. So we don't stop there and we're like, okay, we're done. Gene A is responsible for brain metastasis. We take gene A and we validate it in um, downstream experiments. Uh, we look at in vitro experiments versus in vivo mouse experiments. Um, and, and at the end, we want different layers of validation for this hypothesis that we have that gene A is responsible for lung to brain metastasis. And that's how kind of a manuscript comes together and um, the conclusion of this project is going to be. Where I left it off um, before my master's was done was to complete the screen, which as you're aware, as a grad student requires a lot of optimization. Um, so the majority of my um, master's project was spent in introducing this new technique to the lab and creating an animal model because all of the project was done in vivo. So we completed that in vivo screen, the CRISPR activation screen, and now uh, we're sending samples for sequencing um, to then deduce these um, downstream hits that we have. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for providing such a great overview of not only um, what you did with the project, but kind of the different uh, endpoints that you hope the project takes and kind of uh, where you hope maybe other graduate students or any other student might pick it up as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the reality of um, completing kind of um, a master's degree versus a PhD degree, um, where you kind of get to see in a PhD degree, maybe some a project end to end. But as a master's student, you kind of lay the groundwork for something or pick something up from a previous student uh, to finish. Yeah, that's such a great point. Um, and sometimes picking up something from, from a previous student or previous uh, project, especially if that student is not currently in the lab, kind of takes oh, yeah. some getting used to because you have to go through the data, go through the books, go through the notes, but uh, yeah, it ends, ends up working out. Um, sure. And Niku, I'm wondering if we can um, take a step back. So you talked um, a little bit about uh, lung to brain metastasis. Um, can you speak a little bit as to why you would even look at this connection? Like, is that the most common place that the tumor may migrate to? Um, mm -hmm. Or is maybe that, is that the most lethal? Yeah, that's a really good question. And you kind of alluded to it. So from the brain metastasis cases that we get, um, the majority, about 50 to 60% are from lung cancer. Um, and nowadays, because primary cancers are being well-treated and well-controlled, metastasis is usually the reason why um, patients unfortunately succumb to their diseases. Um, so metastasis as a whole now is a really important area for us target. Um, but brain metastasis specifically is, um, it, it progresses very quickly. So we were looking at survival time between 12 to 16 months after people find out. Um, and it's usually been there for a while before you actually get diagnosed with it because we have different stages of metastasis. So we have pre-metastasis, which is cells when they just get into the brain and are trying to find, find out if they can survive there. We have micrometastasis, which is cells actually homing in there and starting to proliferate. And then we have macrometastasis, which is when clinically we're able to see and visualize the metastasis, which is usually sometimes late 
um, to be treated. Um, and it's the, the most common way to take it out is surgical resection. So it's, it's a lot of um, complications that come with brain metastasis, especially from the lung, because it's so common. Um, that was where we thought the most impact could be made with this project before we move on to maybe breast to brain metastasis and melanoma to brain metastasis with the same method. So let's optimize this method in the, the most common type and then go into other cohorts as we get better and better at it. Mm -hmm. And especially speaking uh, earlier, you're talking about how maybe we can make the targets more personalized. Mm -hmm, exactly. Treatment and therapy is moving towards uh, personalized treatment um, and how the, um, this might be a good target for that. Because I imagine some drugs or treatments might be difficult to administer because of the blood brain barrier. It won't oh, yeah. allow it to cross. So it makes it even more difficult. For sure. And there have been um, some vulnerabilities or genetic vulnerabilities, we call them, um, developed in the lung tumor. For example, we have this marker or this gene called EGFR, and it's a growth factor receptor. And um, some, some lung cancers actually ex overexpress this. And by knowing that, we can use a, a targeted inhibitor towards EGFR. Um, so if we can find drivers that are unique to specific specific patients or different cohorts of patients, maybe we can subtype um, this cascade. Maybe we can say, you know, 20% of um, patients actually have this overexpressing gene. Then maybe we can, like you said, use precision medicine, um, precisely uh, target those um, biomarkers to each patient and then see where we go from there. So, um, yeah, that's really interesting, Nuku. And just to follow up to that, I guess my question was, um, how did you know which genes might be overexpressed in this lung to brain metastasis? Was this something that, that your lab um, and other labs discovered, or was this something already known in the literature? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the method that we use is basically overactivating or overexpressing every gene. And it's a genome-wide screen. So we're going into this kind of unbiasedly and saying, hey, we don't know anything. Uh, let's just start from a fresh slate and let's say that we want to overexpress one gene in every cell. So each cell has one gene overexpressed and we're using enough cells to cover the entire genome. So at least one gene is expressed in one cell and all of the genes are overexpressed, if you know what I mean, in the cell pool that we have. Um, so this way, if one cell makes it up to the brain, we know which gene specifically in that cell led to that phenotype. Um, and based on the literature, we have some idea of which gene families we're going to find. And that's actually a way for us to do quality control on our, on our screen. Um, if we get our results back and we see that, yeah, there's a list of genes. And at the top, we have the gene that has been most uh, implicated in lung to brain metastasis in other papers as well. That means that our screen actually worked and it's showing positive hits that have been uh, confirmed by other groups. Um, so that is a, another layer of validation. Uh, but yeah, we're kind of going into this unbiasedly and that adds additional power um, to this screen as well because we're not really changing the process based on previous notions of, yeah, this is what it's supposed to be. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, thanks for clarifying that because I wasn't mm -hmm. sure um, if you were selectively overexpressing certain genes based on yeah. what previous studies have found, but it's interesting to know that you kind of like take a clean state, no bias and kind of overexpress mm -hmm. every single gene and see what um, migrates and what doesn't. Exactly. Yeah, that's how it goes. 
And Niku, I know you explained um, a little bit about the CRISPR, rather, the CRISPR-Cas9 system, but can you also speak to the types of techniques that you might use in the lab? Because from someone that has never done this type of research, um, I, I don't know if you're looking through a microscope or if you're always on the computer, like, how, how does this gene editing occur and what kind of materials might you use in the lab to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the micro scale, it can always be like, what's actually happening in the cell? And how do I do this? Yeah, so that those were definitely questions that I had going into this project. Um, but generally speaking, my work was kind of divided into two spheres. Um, one side was in vitro work, and it was kind of leading up to the in vivo work. So in vitro, meaning I was working in a hood, working with cells in a dish. Um, and that is usually considered a way for us to test things before we actually spend the time and money to take this experiment um, into an animal model, uh, or for us to actually prepare cells to be put into the animal model. Um, so the way that this gene editing works is, first of all, you have to start with a cell pool. And the cells that we have that we wanted to use for this project were patient-derived, which made it even more powerful because we can actually see if this model recapitulates what happened in the patient. So we have those cells check. Next thing we need the we need to we need a tool to actually edit these genes, right? To um, overexpress these genes. And how that happens is through a CRISPR library. And by a library, I mean a series of sequence of RNA sequences. So just imagine um, a library of books, and each book has one word written in it. And that one word is the name of the gene that that specific book is targeting. So each sgRNA or each RNA sequence that's in the library will go into that cell, will get incorporated into one cell, and then it'll bind to a specific sequence on the DNA in the cell. And because this is CRISPR activation, the job that this system has is to recruit activators. So it'll bind there. It won't actually edit the actual gene sequence. It won't break it. It won't add anything into it. So it's um, kind of transient. It can change. It can fall off. It's not forever. Mm. So the, once this binds, it recruits other activators. Um, and that's how it gets transcriptionally more, more and more activated and we get more transcripts and therefore more proteins. Um, so that's kind of how the gene editing works. On a on a more simpler scale, when CRISPR knockout happens, which is what I initially explained, um, that's when we actually go in and cut or make double-stranded cuts into the actual genome. And that's the same system. We have a library of these um, RNA sequences that target each gene, and then they go into the, the cell. Um, they also have this protein attached to them that actually makes the cut. So the enzyme makes, makes a cut. Um, but the role of these RNA sequences is just a guide that protein into the DNA sequence. Because you may, you may say, how do they know where to put the cuts, where to actually make the edit? And um, that's where the sgRNAs or the single guide RNAs actually guide the proteins to. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that clarifies. Thing. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, no and uh, Nico, I'm also curious. So once you find which genes may be overexpressed, um, when they metastasize to the brain. I'm curious mm -hmm. if you have to potentially consider any other factors. Like, do you have to consider maybe um, the age of the patient mm -hmm. um, that you derive the cells from, or maybe um, 
how late they were in their tumor progression, do any of those factors affect what genes may or may not be overexpressed? Yeah, these are amazing questions. Um, so something that we look at with lung cancer specifically, in addition to age and also how far along they are maybe in their disease trajectory is whether they were smokers or non-smokers. Um, and that those lifestyle changes, you wouldn't really think to affect the way, you know, a gene drives metastasis maybe. Um, but that's something that we look at and it's important to, when you find, for example, when we take one cell line and we do this screen in and we find a list of genes that we think are drivers of brain metastasis, it's important to acknowledge that those are drivers of brain metastasis in this patient. Hmm. Um, and we need to repeat this process or at least take that list and validate that list in multiple patients in multiple samples, different genders, different, um, you know, traject disease trajectory, different treatments that they've been through, because we know that we have treatment induced mutations as well. Um, and those can result in, you know, metastasized um, disease down the line. So there's all of these intricacies that we have to look at. And it's never, you know, as simple as we did this thing, and then we got a list of genes, and let's go treat them now. It's never as simple as that. It's always, you know, those quality control checks that you have to do. And in order to be able to generalize something to a population of specific condition, you always need to go through those quality controls and make sure that you include everybody in there. Okay, so all things being equal, you know, if things could be generalized, yeah. um, what would be the ultimate goal of um, identifying these genetic drivers? So you identify maybe a set, what do you do with that information? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So. The next step usually for that would be to go into therapeutics um, because what would be the kind of the outcome of just having those genes, right? We want to know whether we can um, target them or um, use them in order to firstly target the metastasis and as a, an add-on or a bonus also maybe target the lung tumor. Um, so how we usually do this is there are um, bioinformat bioinformatics tools that will map that specific gene set that you have onto a database of small molecule compounds or chemical compounds. And at the end of the day, what that means is basically drugs um, that you can use to target those specific genes. Now, there's benefit in targeting maybe multiple genes in that specific disease that you're targeting. So for example, for us, it would be lung to brain metastasis. And if there are five genes that consistently show up in all of our experiments, then we may want to take a combination approach and find five drugs that will synergize together to target those genes and hopefully uh, improve the patient trajectory. Another thing to think about is what are patients already being treated for and what are the what are the radiations and what are the chemotherapies that they're already being exposed to? Because at the end of the day, if this wants to go into clinical trials and actually be implemented in the clinic, it has to fit into the already existing structure of what patients are going through. So if we find a drug that has an interaction, uh, a negative interaction with a drug that they're actually being exposed to already, then that's a no-go for us. Um, so there's always these different layers of things to go through. And that's where um, medicinal chemists, for example, come into play. We have letters at OICR or McMaster also that help us create these drugs to um, target these specific uh, proteins um, that come from the genes that we found um, in our screen. Um, so yeah, a lot of collaboration happening on that front for sure. 
Mm. And that's really interesting. You kind of speak to the like ultimate outcome, um, in this case, therapeutics. I'm curious if you can kind of take the genetic drivers, whichever genes are overexpressed and potentially even use them as predictors of Mm. which patients might have their lung cancer metastasized to the brain or not. For sure. And maybe start um, kind of prophylactic treatment for them to stop it from metastasizing. Yeah, that's really smart. And it has been done with regards to EGFR, for example. They didn't actually know that um, lung cancer patients that had overexpressed EGFR um, also had more brain metastasis. But later on, they found that, yes, lung cancer is being controlled by EGFR. EGFR inhibitors, but also brain metastasis isn't happening. So maybe EGFR is also a predictor of increased brain metastasis risk, exactly what you're talking about, right? So they kind of reverse engineered back to it, but we're going from a place of, okay, we know the gene, let's um, prevent it from happening. I think it's just so cool, especially um, in this field, like how many directions that you can take. um, Exactly, yeah. Okay, and Niku, can you speak to some of the key collaborators that may have helped you with this project? Yeah. Um, So first of all, um, as I mentioned a little bit before, these are all patient samples that we're working with. um, And without these, we wouldn't have been able to get to the place that we're at. So I want to firstly thank all the patients that donated their samples. Um, And we actually got our samples from a collaborator in the the UK. So um, it's always great to have those international and national um, collaborators on your project. Another thing that most grad students are familiar with are committee members. Your committee members are your best collaborators. And I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Moffat from uh, the University of Toronto, who's a CRISPR expert and his entire lab has been very supportive. Um, especially on the bioinformatics side. That's something that I wish I worked on more in my during my master's is to get those bioinformatics skills. So that would be a tip I would have for anyone going into kind of genomic research. Um, but all in all, you know, other people in the lab, really the mentorship that was there, especially for someone bringing something new into the lab that was always um, appreciated. And without that, I wouldn't have been able to complete it. So yeah, those are some of the things that I would like to point out. Collaborations are a beautiful thing when they work out, like just this exchange of knowledge and and the mentorship that you receive. For sure. And it can really enrich the project. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to comment, like sometimes in the moment, you might not realize how it's helpful, but then maybe when you see somebody that's like struggling without that mentorship, um, without those collaborations, realize how grateful um, Mm -hmm. you were. Yeah. So um, yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important to acknowledge people who kind of like helped us along the way and lifted us up. Definitely, yeah. Well, Niku, um, thank you for explaining um, in such great detail what your research was about and also where you hope your project goes, uh, regardless of which um, student, individual collaborator may pick it up. Um, I am curious, though, how do you spend your time when you're not inside the lab? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so I would say most of the time I would want to be interacting with people or working on something um, that has an impact um, besides, you know, watching Netflix and things like that. So yeah, I do that too. Um, But something that I'm really passionate about is to bring up the voices of women and also people of color and working on this with one of my friends, we created a a platform or a community, whatever you want to call it. We don't really have a name yet um, for it, but it's, it's called Project Empower Circle. And we started it last year, July, when the pandemic was 
um, you know, heightening in its severity. And, and our major goal was really to amplify voices. At that point, we really wanted to amplify stories, have these conversations around what is the, the unique experiences of women in BIPOC um, and wherever they go, you know, workplace, university, um, family, different things. And as it evolved, we saw uh, an increased need for events and also for a social media platform. People were asking, you know, where can we find you? Um, so we created an Instagram page um, and we used, you know, different design. We, we weren't really social media gurus at that point, but we used different tools that were available to us to create posts um, and really engage with our community. And I remember us putting together an event um, last year Jan or this year, January, um, it was called Elevate 2021, like something crazy. And that, that was like our first event to put on um, a big event. And it was just amazing to see how people tackle the same topic from different angles. So we had rooms about financial empowerment. We had rooms about, you know, how to ask for a raise, how to negotiate for something. So, you know, it's all it all comes down to what your day-to-day -day is and what the big picture could be if you empower people and also feel empowered in the place that you're at. I love that. Yeah, providing a platform for, um, for individuals and those topics sound really interesting too. Yeah, it yeah. It's like well-received. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we're hoping to kind of branch out into the community more because that's um, you, you can't really keep everything online, right? You, in order to make the most impact, I feel like personally, I really care about community engagement. Um, so I've always wanted to, you know, tap into those um, partnerships that we can have with different women's organizations in the community. So always looking forward to that. So when you're not amplifying people's voices or watching Netflix um, or kind of figuring out the latest therapeutics for uh, brain cancer, you also read design books. Yes. That. Yeah. So design um, was something that I was introduced to in a health side course, actually, in my fourth year. And I, at that point, I was just like, yeah, design, like graphic design, right? And that was not it. Um, and it was actually way more exciting than that to me, where um, as a general intro, it's kind of the process of thinking about a problem, identifying a solution, and then prototyping solutions and testing it with users. But the thing that really stood out to me here was the human-centered design and the user-centered design aspect of it. Um, so I could take that probably anywhere with me, even in you know thinking about my master's project, the patient-centered research that I do, for example, or you know in the project and power circle project, you know I'm I'm centering the vo voices of women. And, you know, BIPOC. So it really applies to everything. Um, and I was really interested to learn about it through these books because, you know, there's a lot of history behind design. Um, and I'm really hoping to be able to take that into whatever future career that I go into because it really applies to solving any problems. So yeah, I'm, I'm an avid learner in design books as well. So I would love to talk to anyone if they're interested um, in this topic. But your passion for it is just um, coming off the screen, so it's obvious. Oh, thank you. I'm really interested in it. Uh, well, thank you, Niku, for coming on the show today and talking about your really fascinating research. I learned a lot, and I'm certain our listeners did as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you to all of you who listen or are listening or have listened here on 93.3 CFMU. Thanks for tuning into the Alamac. We'll be back next week with another McMaster graduate student. Take care, everyone. Hey there, Adam here. 
Did you enjoy that episode of the Almanac? I sure did. Do you want more fun, interesting, thought-provoking, and or entertaining science content? I sure do. Do you know where to go for that? You bet I do. What's that? You do too, but you want to know what I was thinking? Why, I was thinking about scientificcanada.ca, of course. That's where you can find great shows like Random Walk, where I, Adam, take what is sometimes called a drunkard's walk through the world of research and academic culture. But what I really want to tell you about is a brand new show, Gamer's Guide to Ecology, where master ecologist Jesse DeHaan takes us on a walk through massive open-world video games, diving into the flora and fauna of these creative masterpieces with a more technical eye. If you've been listening to our show recently, you'll know that Jesse is just wrapping up their series on Red Dead Redemption 2. That's the Wild Wild West one. Hey, listen, between you and me, I think Jesse could stay on that game pretty much forever. I love the Wild West. I think. I probably wouldn't survive in the Wild West. I... I definitely would not survive in the Wild West. But, as far as Red Dead Redemption 2 goes, I know people who play it almost exclusively as a camping simulator. I mean, you can go out and spend a day fishing, cooking what you catch over a fire, and, you know, getting menaced by larger wildlife. Summer's over, so why not go for one last outing from the comfort of your favorite podcasting app, huh? Want to get ahead of us over at scientificcanada.ca? You can listen to the next set of episodes on Jesse's main feed, The Gamer's Guide to Ecology, which can be found on any streaming service you'd like. Want to hear what's coming up soon on scientificcanada.ca? As a survivor of a crashed interstellar spaceship, you have to fight off hunger, thirst, and the dangers of unknown flora and fauna to survive and find a way to escape the planet. This game is terrifying. It's a vast open world full of action and adventure and plenty of secrets to discover. Get your Jacques Cousteau fix exploring aquatic biomes at various depths and search for answers about past crash survivors, all while dodging dangerous predators.